the Connected Families podcast is made possible by listeners like us. My name is Nikki. My husband Daniel and I and our three kids, Julia, Matthew, and Ryan, and our new puppy Sadie live in Dallas, Texas. We homeschool our children and love serving at our church. Our family loves to connect with each other by playing games and reading books. I hope you enjoy today's program. Welcome, everyone. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Stacy Bellward. This is the Connected Families Podcast. Well, that pre-roll you just heard recorded from a family in our community, it's just the best. I love it. If you're interested in recording one and submitting it to the podcast, check out the show notes for easy directions. Our purpose for this podcast is to guide you to receive God's grace and truth, and then to equip you to pass that grace and truth on to your children. We are so grateful that you are a part of the Connected Families community. Well, today I have Lynn Jackson, co-founder of Connected Families with me. Hi, Lynn. Hello, hello. Glad to be here. Yeah, here we are, 2023, new year. It's fun. We're here for a really important topic today, aren't we, Lynn? It's something that our community is very invested in. We got a barrage of questions when you threw this out on Discipline the Connects course Facebook group. It was like, (laughs) there's a lot of interest. There was. It was over 30 questions, our alumni Facebook group. So if you've gone through DTC, Discipline That Connects with Your Child's Heart, then you get to me in that Facebook group and there's a lot, a lot of people there, like lots. And so our topic today is, is it worth seeking a diagnosis for my struggling child? That's a question that so many parents have, right? Is what I'm dealing with in my home right now is there a diagnosis that's needed? And so that's what we're going to cover today. And to handle the conversation, we invited a longtime friend of Connected Families of yours, Lynn. Would you like to just introduce Mandy? Yeah, Mandy has been just a friend and a friend of Connected Families for a long time. And she's a family practice doc, has served our country in that capacity. And she is also qualified to speak on this topic as a parent. So uh, we couldn't be more excited to invite her in here. So Mandy Kuda, welcome to the Connected Families podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great honor. Mandy, you have four kids. I do. Three boys and one girl. The girl's smack in the middle. Uh Uh-huh. So Mandy, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us about just your medical training and just your experience with navigating diagnosis in in your family. Sure. Well, I am a family physician. I trained in the military for medical school as well as in residency and served for 12 years. I continue to serve in the reserves and teach at an academic institution as one of my primary roles right now and do research. I have had the opportunity to do a master's of public health along the way. And my focus area was maternal child health and health behavior. And that was actually where I really started to gain some exposure to the integrated approach to the, you know, biologic things that I had been taught in medical school. And it was also when I was having children. And so that combined with much of the connected families content just really expanded my perspective on how to approach kids and kids when they drive me crazy and (laughs) helping friends when they have kids that are, you know, that are struggling or that are, you know, causing some struggles in the family. And then just really being able to understand the concepts of the framework of Connected Families has really helped anchor me in that. So I'm really grateful for Connected Families in that journey. 
we're really grateful to have you here today because we do have a lot of questions to ask you and of course. you and Lynn will answer them. Lynn, I know you have some experience with diagnosis in your family too. It's not a secret to anyone who's familiar with us. It's been in all the courses and you've described that, but in your home, there was ADHD and other things. Do you want to just mention that, Lynn? Well, yeah. One of our sons was described by his pediatrician as a post child for ADHD. (laughs) And another one scored the lowest on the test of visual attention that the clinic had ever seen. And then my third child, our daughter, we asked our pediatrician, so do you think if Bethany's got a little ADHD going? And he just laughed, which meant, are you kidding? Of course she does. (laughs) So we just had quite a crew and uh, I learned a lot. So we have assembled two experts in all the various ways (laughs) between Lynn and Mandy, and I'm really excited to dive into a lot of the real practical questions that people have asked us. I mean, even as practical as how old should my child be before I get the diagnosis? So we'll dive into some of that stuff. But, you know, as we always do here at Connected Families, we care a lot about what is our faith grounding, the, the faith foundation of a topic like this. And Mandy, I know you were in your devotions this morning and just some certain verses popped out to you that were very relevant to this topic as we dive into the details. Can you share that? Yeah, I think that one of the scriptures that drew me into medicine was Psalm 139. And, you know, we can share that in a little bit more depth, but as I've grown in my experience of medicine and with kids and just growing to know more about human beings, I have a greater humility or recognition of the complexity of who we are and how we're built. And so in Isaiah 40 today, I just was reading verses 25 through 31. So it says, do you not know, have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary and his understanding. No one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those whose hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. I mean, I love that whole, all of Isaiah 40, but especially the idea of, you know, the Lord is the everlasting God, creator of the ends of the earth, just his understanding we can't fathom. So all of the complexities of who we are, (laughs) are understood by God. And who our kids are. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine that there are so many tired parents out there Mm -hmm. that are exhausted and wondering where, where is my hope? And it is from God's thanks for that, Mandy. That was really beautiful and encouraging. Those parents who are tired are asking questions. And the question is, is it worth it to seek a diagnosis for my struggling child? And so let's start off our podcast then with that question. When is the right time? Mandy? It's such a great question because the reason for having a diagnosis can vary. There can be, you know, important sort of clinical pathways that are driven by a diagnosis. So if a treatment plan is being made, you know, collaboration with care providers, that can be very important. But at the beginning, as a parent, you know, I want to sort of understand what are my reasons for a diagnosis. And 
I know for myself, anytime that I've wondered about my children or myself about a diagnosis that I was curious about, I was always wanting to sort of have an answer for a problem. And I think that as long as there's that curiosity about what is happening on, you know, in my child, in me as being kind of a reason for the diagnosis and not just a way to sort of fix a problem. I think that that's a very good reason to pursue a diagnosis, especially if it's to sort of start on a path of exploration with a, a group of care providers that can provide some good expertise with the with the child and, and the parent. And I think in this process too, it's really helpful if, unless the child is like super young and really struggling a lot where it's like, oh, they can't process what's going on. But as our kids navigated this system, particularly our boys, I was like, we were right there with them in that process, in that decision. It's like helping them to identify and express what's frustrating them and what do they want help for. And do you see this as a challenge? It can be a conversation with kiddos. So one of our sons, he was starting to really struggle in school and he was getting negative feedback from peers. And that was sort of a tipping point for us. It's like, okay, you're not happy in school anymore and you used to love it. And so let's see what's going on and how do you feel about that? And really involving them because I was very aware of not wanting to just drag my child from one professional to the next. Like you mm -hmm. were saying, Mandy, that communicates you're a problem to be fixed, but it's like normalizing it. It's like in this world we live in, there's little glitches in everybody's body. And if you've got some diagnoses of your own as a parent, share those, you know, whether it's medical or psychiatric or whatever. And God just wants to help us to walk this as strong as he can in this world. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of it is how you work with your child and then how you set them up to not feel defective if they're going to, you know, a consultant or for some sort of evaluation. I really appreciate that perspective, Lynn, because I think that the tendency in an appointment in many situations that I've sort of observed and maybe even been in myself is that it's like the parent and the clinician are having this conversation, but the child is the person who this is going to ultimately impact the most. And there's so much about skill development and curiosity. And again, as a, a family physician, you know, I'm always wanting to be interested in what's the, the patient oriented outcome. And if the patient oriented outcome is directed at the parent, I'm going to completely miss what the child actually is interested mm -hmm. in. And they can often speak that in ways mm -hmm. that is really helpful because they may not see what they're experiencing as troublesome. Or in the case of your son, it becomes evident that now this is affecting not just maybe a home life, it's also affecting school life. And that is some of the diagnostic criteria is when it's impacting multiple environments for, for right. the child. Yeah. Yeah. I got a call from his teacher when he was in third grade and said, I think we need to consider an evaluation here because during circle time, your son was off to the side doing push-ups and singing. The poor kid was trying to regulate and just like keep himself focused. You know, that's a child that's struggling this like, okay, buddy, this, it shouldn't be this hard. So you obviously so, already taught him some good skills though. 
Push-ups are very... I think a question that a lot of parents ask, you know, before it's the time to go to the doctor and ask questions is how can I decide if my child just needs more time to grow or mature, to gain skills, or is this really ADHD? Or in other ways, is this just age-appropriate behavior, like doing push-ups on the side? Is that just normal? Or is this something that I need to pursue with a professional? What would you say to that mom who's asking that question, Amanda? Well, I think that that's a question that probably isn't an either or. I think that there is always the opportunity, even as we're, you know, pursuing this ADHD diagnosis, if that seems to be the the path that folks are concerned about, that gaining skills and assessing kind of developmental needs along the way is just, you know, part of the parallel pathway that is kind of part of the experience. I will say that this really requires a lot of what I call observational data. I'm a researcher by profession, but I really love thinking about my children as my a component of my research. And I'm also a gardener. So I tend to sort of do some similar observational, you know, sort of interventions with my garden. And it's the cultivating of that curiosity as a parent that has helped me so much to sort of say like, okay, I'm going to step back and my child, you know, like this week we were skiing and had a lot going on. And all of us, I think, got to the point where we were just kind of struggling and really on sensory kind of overload. And I got to the point where I just said, okay, we're all going to go to bed early because I just recognize that we've kind of all reached our maximum capacity. And being able to take that step back out and say, like, this is just something that we need has taken a lot of time for me, first of all, to be able to come to those sorts of conclusions around my observational data. But there just has to be a lot of things that we learn about our kids over time. And as we learn those things, if there are things that seem more like struggle. And again, especially in school, especially in places at home where there's just kind of ongoing conflict and difficulty, getting additional help with a diagnosis and treatment can be really valuable. Yeah. I love that you were really emphasizing the value of the parent's observations. And you probably not at all be insulted by this, this research that I learned like 20 years ago, probably, and I don't think it's changed substantially, is that people thought that the expert about a child would be first the doctor, then the therapist, third on the list would be the teacher, and then fourth on the list would be the parent. And Mandy, you're, you're grinning as I say this. And what's actually true is the parent leads the way, knows the most about the child, then the teacher then the therapist, and then the doctor. So I I share that not to diss on the medical profession, you know, it's incredibly valuable, but just for parents to have confidence about what they're observing in their child and to not allow that to be quickly discounted. If that, you know, it's maybe it's not a great match with a doctor or something, but to, to just have confidence in that. And if that's not honored, then seek out a second opinion. One of the first things that I feel like was a helpful learning tip as a early physician before I had children was the advice that always ask the mom or the dad what they really think is going on. And that's been something that I've applied and I've really grown to even use as part of my diagnostic sort of set of data that I can even gather among labs and tests and all these things. But it's like what the parent says is such important data. And like you said, the most important. 
Mm-hmm. So I'm listening and I'm thinking as a mom that I would apply what you've just said to me, like, as I'm curious, as I'm observing, if my gut is telling me this is not developmental and this is harder than it should be, then that could be a clue to mm-hmm. go and talk to some professional. Would you say that's right? Yeah. And I think it's also, this is where having like the community of people that are around us too, because you can, you know, get the appointment with the professional, but then you can also share with friends or other folks that are in your community. It's where the connected families community is beautiful. You know, those sorts of like gut feelings. Is this okay? Or is this something that I should explore further? Or even if this is okay, I'm still struggling with it for some reason. What's the, what's going on in me or what could be going on in my child that is contributing to this? You know, a lot of parents who are Oh, I just picture them that, you know, they're kind of swimming through the muck of the river. They're trying to like, we get their way through it all. And it does feel so discouraging. And it can be a place where parents feel so much anxiety around their child's future. And I know that in this podcast, we would like to bring some examples of some pretty cool people in history that had some struggles in their childhood, because we want to give parents hope that after As you're weeding through the muck of the river, if you're swimming through, there's hope. Amanda? (laughs) Well, and I will preface this by saying that I, I think Lynn's okay with me saying this. We didn't really practice this part of it, but Lynn helped with some coaching for my Uh husband and I, as we were sort of in the younger child years, wading through like what you're describing, especially Mm -hmm. with one of our children who was, oh my goodness, like just driving me crazy. And as I've grown to realize it's probably because he and I are very similar. But when I was visiting at Wheaton College, which is where I went to my undergrad, I went through the Billy Graham Center Museum. And I think I was just sort of like interested in reading, but also in a time where I was struggling and needing some hope. And so I read this story about Billy Graham's mom who took him to the pediatrician. And again, this has been, you know, probably a hundred years ago almost now and said, this child has so much energy. I do not know what to do with him. And there are farmers. So she said he's working from, you know, beginning of the day to the end of the day, other than when he's in school. And the, the physician just said, keep him active, keep him going, keep him engaged, you know, just keep him busy. And, you know, this is his energy and he is going to be something great. And then obviously we know how Billy Graham's energy went on to become very impactful. And he had so much longevity in his career too, which is something to be said for his energy level. So I just really felt like that was affirming to me as a mom with my high energy child, because that's really where this sort of becomes an issue for us. Again, gift gone awry, maybe when they're young, but where that can emerge into something so amazing, like Billy Graham. I love that story. Billy Graham went on to be just the world's most prolific evangelist, I would say. And so what hope that these kids, yeah, have such a great future in store. And I would say our ADHD child with the most energy, like I had had to strap chairs to the table after meals and just, yeah, but he has really used that energy for awesome purposes. 
It's really good. There's also a great book out. It's now called Discoverers, Dynamos, and Dreamers, or some other order of those three. It used to be called The Edison Trait because it was about Thomas Edison. And Thomas Edison, in somewhere in the range of junior high, middle school, was kicked out of school because he was so intense and active and curious and all the things. And the director of the school said, Madam, your son is no longer welcome in our school. His brain is addled. (laughs) And she was like, you do not deserve the privilege of educating my son. She educated him at a home and he, and he was doing experiments on the family cat when she wasn't looking. And he was just (laughs) like a bundle of curiosity. And, you know, look what became of that intensity and that curiosity. So really having a view of these kids as they have incredible potential. And that's one of the themes that kind of peaks uh, up in the, in our sensitive, intense kids online course is there's really, these are often really high potential kids that it's kind of a treasure hunt to discern that and give it a good positive expression. So I think all of this perspective can just help, you know, with that, that idea of, does he just need more time or is it ADHD or whatever, you know, get that child outside moving, doing lots of things, cut down the screen time, do all the things that nurture that intense little brain and body, and then see what you've got. So Mandy, do you have a comment on that? Well, I would just also, I love that list that you just offered. I would put sleep at the top of that Mm -hmm. list too, because the interesting thing about the activity, cognitive process associated with this amount of activity and energy is that it really tires you out. But kids, me, I don't always know my limits. And so in order to recover effectively, sleep is so critical. And probably for this group of kids, but I would venture most kids, 10 to 12 hours of sleep a night is actually ideal. Probably most adults need upwards of eight to nine hours of sleep at night, which I have only started to get in the last couple of years since I've realized how much sleep really impacts my own life, but I know it helps my kids. So, you know, sleep, activity, nutrition, whether or not there's a diagnosis of ADHD, these are sort of categories of things that are going to help everyone, (laughs) but they're also habits that take a little bit of time to develop. So I think being patient with understanding that, okay, things feel a little like, oh, maybe I don't know where to start or, you know, again, kind of that wading through the, the, you know, all of it, just start with maybe one thing that feels achievable. Mm -hmm. I always like to do the fruit and a vegetable with every meal. Like that was my one thing. Like if I could just get the kids to eat a fruit and a vegetable with every meal. (laughs) We need to go to a break in just a minute, but I'm wondering if, if we could just get through like two more questions and just have shorter answers for them. One, a parent asks, what is the likelihood that a child will have ADHD if the parent has it? Mandy? So I was able to do some research to sort of track this down. And there's this great consensus statement that has been developed by an international group. And the research that's out there is pretty wide range around ADHD. But this is a group of studies called a meta-analysis where it tries to put together all of the data. And essentially their summary statement around this kind of genetic question is that ADHD rarely is caused by a single genetic or environmental risk factor, but most cases of ADHD are caused by the combined effects 
of many genetic and environmental risks, each having a very small effect. So it kind of gets back to that sort of complexity idea that we have. There's a parent that had ADHD. The chances of their child having ADHD is certainly higher than someone who doesn't have ADHD, but it's other factors are involved in terms of how that plays out. And then at what age is it appropriate to get tested for ADHD? This is, again, another one of those evolving questions. The diagnostic sort of line is age four, but the goal of many clinicians, even if a child was brought in that was having some struggles, is sort of this, we want them to come in early so we can kind of know and maybe engage with some early intervention conversations. So maybe there's occupational therapy, maybe there's developmental therapy or speech therapy that can be engaged. So if there is a diagnosis at age four, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's always medication that happens at that point. So the benefits of maybe driving down an age of diagnosis is to get some early intervention, which we know, especially with other conditions like autism, the earlier the diagnosis, often the better, because we can kind of get these interventions involved Mm -hmm. early. Good. All right. We're going to go to a break, but when we come back, we have a lot more to talk about ladies. We have a lot of questions that we have to talk about sensory, just how do you get a good diagnosis? What does that look like? Where do you go? So Mandy and Lynn, see you on the other side of the break. Sounds good. Hey friends, how is parenting in 2023 been so far? Well, I'm sure it's not so different than 2022. Well, I just want to say that we have a great lineup of topics that we are going to cover on this podcast for 2023. We plan about six months in advance, making sure we have a little wiggle room. So in the next few months, we are going to dive deeper into sensitive and intense topics such as learning disabilities, anxiety, anger, explosions. And we're going to talk more about sleep issues, lying, attachment. I'm really looking forward to it. Well, if you have benefited from this podcast, would you share it with a friend? Over 45,000 people listen to our podcast every month. It's humbling and wonderful to be part of sharing God's grace and truth with parents. When you share the podcast, more parents will receive that grace and truth and lots of encouragement and hope in their parenting. Starting the year with extra encouragement and a parenting guide, that sounds pretty great. Well, thank you for sharing our podcast with your friends. All right, we're here after the break and we're having this rich and deep conversation with Lynn Jackson and Mandy Kuda. And we're talking about getting a diagnosis for our kids and knowing when we want to have a diagnosis. We're talking about ADHD and and really anything that is going on that you would need a diagnosis. And so the question that I want to start with in this half of the show is the question around overlap. So let me start by asking the question to you, Mandy, actually, what is the overlap of different diagnosis? So this is a really tough one, Stacey. The complexity of ADHD as a as a pure diagnosis probably doesn't exist. There probably is a lot of situations, but if we could think about it as the way that the person's brain and body are integrated in the condition of ADHD is different. So the wiring is different in the brain. And so as that is either acknowledged or not, then there's more disintegration. Dan Siegel is one of my favorite 
neuroscientist to reference, he talks a lot about disintegration. So as disintegration happens associated with maybe this underlying kind of cognitive process that represents ADHD, then you can actually get conditions like anxiety, like depression, substance use disorder can be associated with folks that are sort of trying to self-treat some of those disintegrations that they experience. So the co-occurring scenario at the beginning is probably lower, but over time, there can become a higher chance of those types of conditions. Now, I would say that the sensory processing space is one that can really interact with the ADHD. And Lynn, I know you can speak to this probably with even greater competence than me. So I'll defer to you on how you feel like that integrates together. (laughs) Well, I don't know about greater competence, but greater passion. (laughs) How my body takes in sensory information and then outputs movement. That's a huge factor in so many things. So if I am hypersensitive to my environment, I'm going to be distracted. I'm going to be moving more to to try to override the sensory barrage that's coming at me, particularly with the hypersensitivity to sensory input. There's increase in anxiety diagnoses of various kinds. There's so many ways in which it it all interacts. In kids with autism, 78% also have sensory processing disorder. In kids with either ADHD or sensory processing disorder, there was a 60% overlap. And again, you know, the link with anxiety, if I'm in a constant state of sensory barrage, that is anxiety producing. So there's, it's sort of a foundational thing that bleeds into so many other diagnoses. If all I have is a hammer, then everything's in a nail. As an OT, I want to say to people, you know, a really great first step is to go get an eval by an OT and see what can start to settle down as sensory processing improves. And then it's kind of like, well, then what do you have left as a diagnosis? The one positive thing about that is sort of a first step is that kids usually love going to OT because there's, it can be such a fun place. (laughs) I can definitely verify that. I feel like the early (laughs) interventions for our one child actually helped our other children where we all have probably variations of sensory (laughs) processing, you know, abilities and they are so fun. All those exercises. Yeah. Yeah. We actually have a free online course. If anyone's interested, it's seven calming strategies to help your kids. And that's free on our website. Feel free to grab that. It'll have a link for that in the show notes too. And of course we can't talk about this without mentioning that really literally in just a few weeks, we are launching the Sensitive Intense online course that Lynn's worked on for years, got to work on for the last while. And we are so excited to get that launched and it will be available really soon. And Sensory is definitely a good chunk of that course. Let's move on, Mandy, to how to get a good diagnosis. So we've talked a lot about the question that so many parents have, you know, that's really, is it worth it? Is it time? Should I seek a diagnosis for my struggling child? So they've checked, as a parent, they've checked their hearts, they're noticing, they're curious, they've, you know, read lots of things and all talked to teachers probably. And so now what? Where do I go? Who do I trust? Where do I start 
with the process? The first step is always just to ask for help. And so often the entry point can be primary care clinic and, you know, pediatricians, family physicians, you know, the family nurse practitioners and and other clinicians that are in primary care can really help to support the initial evaluation. And often there are pathways in primary care environments that can actually start parents on the journey of gathering the data that helps with the diagnosis. So that's the one thing about ADHD is that it's a very long list of sort of symptoms and you gather that information from multiple environments. And again, it's more just to sort of verify that what everyone's kind of seeing is what's happening consistently. So that can happen in the primary care environment initially, or it can get started there. Often the time involved in kind of talking through the findings from some of those assessments and the uh, questionnaires that are completed does happen in a psychologist or a psychiatrist office. There are more and more other providers available in integrative medicine, functional medicine that start to be able to have conversations with parents and children about different interventions and very holistic ways of treating ADHD in particular. So I would just say start in the primary care environment with the diagnosis question. And, you know, there are some steps that are involved in the assessments um, and then some specialists that usually come into play, especially in more challenging cases. You mentioned assessments. And I know from my kids and school world and friends and all the kids, there are so many assessments. Help parent know where to start with that. Yeah. Well, first I would say don't try to download anything off the internet because there probably is really good ones, but ultimately what you're going to have to do are the ones that your clinic and the clinical pathway has established. There are some standardized assessments that your psychologist's primary care clinic, if they're set up to do this, are going to have you do. So I wouldn't necessarily go through any online assessments yourself. There's definitely a lot of resources. The American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Psychological Academy, they have the kind of diagnostic list, but you still have to do these sort of tests that are helpful. Not tests, more questionnaires. It's again, it's a data gathering effort when parents are kind of going through this and teachers will be asked to fill out a questionnaire. If there's another environment that the child is in consistently, maybe a sport or a faith community, those are places where you can kind of gather data as well. Who's the central person that you would go to to help guide you to know the journey, the path through all of these professionals, all of these assessments. I feel like so many of even my friends have been like, go to this office, try this, go to this office, try that. And they're just, you know, weaving through, wading through who to go to and when and where. Is there anyone that can just kind of be your guide to walk you through, do this first, do this second, do this third? As a primary care physician, I would like to say that that's my job (laughs) in the idealized setting. I know the limitations working in primary care and for all my colleagues that work in primary care, that idealized scenario doesn't always happen. 
often clinics that have, again, these kind of standardized pathways will actually have maybe case managers or nurses or occupational therapists or other sort of colleagues that can kind of also help along the way. But it ends up being a team effort. And it's definitely doesn't always feel as coordinated as maybe I would like. There are many folks out there that really do take this seriously about the primary care being kind of the organizer, the guide, all of these sorts of things. So I hope that folks would find their way to a provider like that. And do you find that primary care versus functional or integrative care, how would that change depending on who you're seeing? So most integrative and functional providers actually are primary care by training. So most of those practices would be a primary care environment. They just have a slightly different lens. So functional medicine, for those that aren't familiar with it, takes a pretty deep dive on things like gut health and diet and environmental factors. The integrative providers or those that are trained in integrative approaches, again, foundational primary care, but take kind of a very holistic, like we're going to look at the biologic, psychological, spiritual, social, kind of cover all that integrated into the diagnosis. So it can be, those can be very helpful lenses if those types of providers are available and they're oriented towards taking care of um, children and families. That's the other qualifier too. Definitely. It's helpful. Like you said, Mandy, to not have parents diving into the internet and, you know, endless checklists and they come to the doctor and they've got a diagnosis (laughs) and they're terrified. You know, it's like Dr. Google can be terrifying sometimes, but I think that there's some value in just feeling equipped before you get to the doctor so that you're understanding what he might be suggesting. So like on our website for the, the sensitive intense kids page, we have a checklist that's a checklist for sensory processing. And then in the same article, there's one on sensitive temperament. So to just sort of educate yourself, holding it all loosely and not going in with, you know, my child has ODD, he's defiant and I want medication, (laughs) you know, know, then you're equipped to really work in a team as with the doctor, as opposed to just being back on your heels, like, oh my gosh, he's throwing out these terms. I have no idea. So it's kind of, yeah, I 100% agree, Lynn, it's so helpful to be, you know, coming in with that amount of research that you've done also with that lens of that gut experience that we're talking about, like, I feel like this might be what's going on. And you can be an advocate, you know, as you're having that conversation with the team, because you're right, sometimes professionals that you might be working with might be just like, this is it, this is what's going to happen. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So advocacy can be really important in that situation. Yeah, and there's I've heard from parents who, you know, have been frustrated about a certain medical practitioner instead of just throwing out the baby with the bathwater, they find a different doctor that's a good fit, that they really can have that sense of teamwork. And that's just such an important starting place. Mm-hmm. That's good. Well, we are coming to a close on our podcast today, but Lynn and Mandy, thanks for being with me. This was valuable, valuable information to so many parents that are working through the question, is it time to get a diagnosis or not? So thanks for being here, Mandy. 
No, it's been such an honor. And I know we've just scratched the surface of all of these questions. So hopefully folks will be curious to explore more. I just want to tie this podcast with a with a bow of, of wrapping it up and just saying, this is such a personal thing that God is so with you in this. And he will guide you. Ask confidently when we do that. And I've coached so many parents who have just shared how God has led them through this process so that they have confidence and not anxiety when they proceed down the path that that they feel like the Lord is taking them on. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you for that. Well, thanks for tuning in today, friends. We are a listener-supported organization. Over 45,000 parents like you listen to this podcast every month. Individual donations make the work to equip and encourage families possible. Well, for more information about Connected Families, follow us on Instagram or Facebook or go to connectedfamilies.org. I will see you next time. Bye.